You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Ed Ludlow in New York in for Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a lack of trust from U.S. lawmakers could completely alter TikTok's operations in its biggest market. The worry is parent company ByteDance's relationship to the Chinese government. Now we've learned the White House is working with TikTok on a security deal, but negotiations have all but stalled. Plus, Kathy Wood's new venture fund targets illiquid assets. It's ARK's first foray into private investments and essentially gives retail traders venture capital market access. We'll ask ARK's chief futurist about the strategy. And Bitcoin maximalist Jack Mallers joins me to discuss Strike's latest funding round and his push to make Bitcoin the currency for cross-border transactions. The Biden administration and TikTok are working on an agreement that would let the video sharing site keep operating in the US. But Bloomberg's learned that talks have stalled over concerns the company's Chinese ownership poses a national security threat, according to sources. If an agreement is reached, it could impose more restrictions on how TikTok stores data from US users. Meanwhile, TikTok has stepped up its lobbying efforts in D.C., but has had little engagement with Republican naysayers. Bloomberg Businessweek reports. Joining me now, Bloomberg's Alex Barinka, Adam, Adam Kovakovich, Chamber of Progress CEO. Alex, I'm going to start with you. What is your latest reporting about talks between the U.S. government and TikTok? Uh, that's right. This is to allay concerns around U.S. users' data, particularly in regards to Chinese government, which owns, which uh, China is where TikTok's parent company is based. So far in these negotiations, TikTok has said that they're going to partner with Oracle to route all U.S. users' data through their servers. They're also going to allow Oracle to audit its algorithms and its content moderation policies. Now, the hiccup, Ed, has come in because uh, the deal still needs to kind of get over the line. Cypheus is the government 
non-governmental body that's investigating it. Um, it is an interagency uh, body, and the Justice Department in particular, uh, the individual who is on um, that panel for the Justice Department, is still concerned that this deal does not go far enough to keep data out of the hands of the Chinese government. And so that seems to be the sticking point, according to our reporting, uh, that is dragging uh, this process on perhaps a little bit longer than TikTok would like. Adam, you're the CEO of the Chamber of Progress, and one of the goals of the Chamber of Progress is to make the tech industry act fairly and responsibly, particularly towards consumers. So when you hear Alex go through the latest reporting, is this good news or bad news? I'm not sure we've ever seen a service like TikTok before that it's become so popular with Americans and yet is owned by the Chinese. And that's um, a unique problem and challenge for government policymakers. Alex talked about the concessions that are on the table in terms of the company's negotiations with the Biden administration. I'm not sure any of those conditions really solve this question of Chinese government access problem, uh, uh, access so long as TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. The Chinese are, are almost certainly going to have access to American user data no matter where it's stored. They don't come in through the front door. They come in through the back door. That's just the reality of how China operates. And as far as the or Oracle, you know, supposed audit, look, Oracle's on the verge of having a massive cloud hosting deal with TikTok, right? They're right. going to have a financial incentive to look the other way regarding China's control. And Oracle's not a branch of the U.S. government. It's obligated to do what's best for its business. So I think there's a, you know, I think that one of the big questions surrounding this, as you said, some of the Biden administration figure, uh, figures involved, are, I think, are doubting whether this is tough enough. And frankly, I think there's a concern that if they do a partial compromise uh, on certain aspects of their business, that doesn't really get at the fundamental national security and even propaganda concerns. That, that that could be seen as avoiding the deep, bigger, deeper issues that TikTok uh, poses. Alex, the talks between TikTok and the U.S. government are kind of the here and now, but you've got a fantastic piece in Bloomberg Businessweek magazine about the kind of bigger picture efforts of TikTok. And I'm going to bring up a chart on the screen now that kind of shows how TikTok's kind of stepping up and bite dance its parent's company, its parent company, in its lobbying efforts, but they're nowhere near what Meta, the the, the parent company of Facebook, is doing. Talk us through what you've learned. Yeah, uh, they are nowhere near, but uh, TikTok did clock its biggest quarter in terms of lobbying spend. And my colleague and I wanted to take you guys behind the scenes a little bit to see what's going on in D.C. with TikTok's efforts to charm the beltway. Uh, what we learned from a mix of sources uh, in D.C. around the company is that they've taken 130 meetings with congressional offices. Uh, the TikTok CEO we heard last week was even at a football game of lawmakers versus the Capitol Police. But, Ed, there's a, a really important group of folks that they are not meeting with. We heard that um, McCarthy and uh, Steve Scalise in the House, the key Republicans in the House, Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio in the Senate, these senators are all Republicans who have been really large detractors and have approached the company with a lot of skepticism, have been notably left off uh, the formal meeting list for the company. Now, the company told us that they are having productive conversations with lawmakers. They said they are 
uh, are not meeting with folks who seem to be uh, unswayed by facts. So, Ed, read into that what you may. Uh, but it does seem that TikTok's charm offensive has missed some of the biggest detractors in the Beltway. Right. And I'll tell you, if this uh, Cynthia's deal doesn't go through or if it drags on and these voices continue to get louder, it could cause some problems for them as they're trying to kind of resolve some of these really big concerns and get this deal over the line. Adam, what's your reaction to what you've just heard about TikTok's lobbying efforts? Look, I, there's no doubt I live here in Washington. I see what they're trying to do. They're trying to highlight the ways people are using TikTok. They're trying to portray themselves as good citizens. I'd probably do the same if I were them. I'm sympathetic to the U.S. employees of TikTok who currently, frankly, have to spend a lot of time dancing on the head of a pin about the Chinese government's role in the app and, and their Chinese ownership. I don't think there's any doubt that their jobs as lobbyists and as, as a company would be much easier and frankly, that our national security concerns would be a lot less if TikTok were sold um, to an American owner. But of course, that's a big, you know, that's a big challenge. I mean, I think uh, Beijing officials in Beijing know what a powerful platform this is. You've got 1.4 billion people on TikTok. I think the reason that, you know, they don't let Chinese citizens use TikTok. I think that's a recognition of how powerful it is. But we know the Chinese government is right. in the business of, of, of spreading propaganda online. They did this during the Olympics. They've done this uh, with influencers. And I, so I think there's a beyond even the question of data access, there is a big question about is TikTok like the next version of RT, you know, which we kicked out of this country after Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. Much to discuss still. Bloomberg's Alex Barinka and Chamber of Progress founder and CEO Adam Kovakovich. Thank you both. Twitter is complaining that Elon Musk's legal team hasn't turned over his text with Morgan Stanley's CEO James Gorman ahead of next month's trial. Twitter lawyers want to sanction Musk and his lawyers for not producing text with Gorman as well as Oracle chairman Larry Ellison. According to Twitter, Musk has withheld four texts with Gorman, including some from April 25th, the day the company announced it was accepting Musk's offer. ARK Investment Management has launched its long-awaited ARK Venture Fund. It will target illiquid assets, investing in both private and public companies, along with other VC funds. The fund limits how and when investors can cash out. But a minimum investment of $500 means potentially any individual U.S. investor can buy in. Here to explain the fund's goals is ARK Chief Futurist, Brett Winton. Brett. What are the goals? Right. Uh, well, we aim to democratize venture capital. And I think you just described exactly what we're trying to do. Anybody can, right now, you can go into your browser and you can type in arc.vc and you can download the Titan app and you can invest $500 today into venture capital. I think it's, if you think about venture as an asset class, it's really been held apart from a lot of individual investors. It, this, these are not assets that should require you to be rich in order to invest in them, nor should you have to you know, fill out a lot of PDFs and um, only be able to get into the top funds if you're the Yale right. endowment. We think that every individual should have access to venture capital uh, if, if within their risk tolerance limits, and we think this vehicle provides a mechanism by which they can do so. So we've been waiting on this mechanism, as you call it, for a little bit of time. Our Bloomberg Intelligence ETF analyst, Eric Bautunas, who you guys know well, has a note out in response to your launch titled, Kathy Wood's Venture Fund, Burdened by Tough Timing, High Fees. Let's start with the timing. It's, it's been brutal for both public and private markets of late. 
How do you get around that? This is the perfect timing. This isn't tough timing. This is, there's never, Bill Gurley said it the other day, there's never been a better moment to start up a business. And I think there's never been a better moment to put your risk capital into a venture product like this one and into innovation companies generally. So um, we think that there's roughly $8 trillion in market cap attributable to the innovation platforms that we focus on, and that's going to oh, more than $200 trillion right. by 2030. So there's incredible technological tailwinds in play. And so um, when everybody's running for the exits is exactly the time to be putting your capital to work. Let's talk about fees then. I think typically ARC's existing ETFs carry a fee of, of 75 basis points, 0.75%, right? And, and in this case, it's a fee of 2.75%, an expense ratio, therefore, of 4.22%. That seems high. What, why is it set at that level? Well, think about the comparable products you could get if you're investing in venture, where you're paying 2% management fee plus 20% carry. So this is a much more efficient exposure than you would get if you were in a top quartile venture fund. Um, which have done quite well. Uh, and so the um, investment vehicle itself restricts our ability to um, charge carry. That's how we could democratize this. And so uh, we believe we're charging an extremely efficient rate for getting access to top-tier companies. This is the likes of Epic Games, um, the, the likes of Mosaic ML, which is really um, delivering um, machine learning and advanced AI software to mid-market businesses. These are companies that um, a typical investor couldn't get access to. And so by just going to arc.vc, right now you can invest in this fund and get access to these kinds of great innovation companies. Redemption's capped, right, at 5% of net asset value on a quarterly basis. And what's so interesting here is that it, the split is 70% private, 30% public. But traditionally, capital is locked up in VC funds for a very extended period of time. You guys are also looking at investing in other VC funds. How do you manage that? You know, some redemptions with the need to lock up capital in the private sector. Yeah, so redemptions are capped at 5% across the entire fund. But if an individual investor um, wants to um, sell their position and the overall request for redemptions are below 5%, they'll get their entire position um, sold out at net asset value. It's only if um, if requests to redeem exceed 5% in a given quarter, then redemptions happen on a pro rata basis. Um, the Another difference between um, our fund and typical venture is that um, the, the money that inflows into the fund can get allocated to innovation assets immediately in the public markets um, as we're negotiating private market deals. And so, right. you know, at Equilibrium, we're seeking to be, um, like you said, targeting 70% private exposures. But on an individual technology basis, we will play arbitrages between the public and the private markets. And in some technologies, it's very clear to us that the private markets are undervalued relative to the public markets and vice versa. And so um, we think this is a, a really interesting way to get exposure to innovation tailwinds um, that will allow us to invest in these companies early and carry them all the way through IPO into the right. public market book of the portfolio. We just showed a chart there of the S&P 500's outperformance relative to ARK Innovation ETF, right? This is a different strategy, but how do you convince investors that this is right to use this new mechanism, this new way of getting access to private markets and private companies? 
I think that any innovation exposure should be measured over a business cycle length um, performance basis. So when we underwrite our positions in the private market and in the public market, we look forward five years and say, you know, what is an in-market investor going to pay five years forward who's not even a technological optimist like us, but just paying a market multiple for the cash flow generation capabilities of those businesses. Right, Uh, right. I think that given, particularly given what's happened with rates and with innovation assets across the board, uh, investors are, are short innovation today maybe unintentionally so. The disruptive technologies that we think are going to penetrate the marketplace are going to totally turn over the business models of incumbents that people have in their core portfolios. Uh, All of the problems that we're seeing in the world today, innovation solves those problems. And so owning a share of the businesses that are going to solve those problems is a way to generate outperformance over time. ARK Invest Chief Futurist. Brett Winton, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Coming up, Netflix has a game plan. The tech giant is creating its first in-house video game studio. But when will the company be seen as a gaming competitor? We discuss next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Netflix is creating its first in-house video game studio in a push to be less reliant on third-party creators and expand its gaming offerings. The streaming service platform is seeking to increase engagement and differentiate itself with games. But Bloomberg Intelligence believes there won't be a significant impact, at least in the near term. BI Media analyst Gita Ranganathan joins us now to discuss. So, Gita, you actually put research out before the news of its own in-house studio hit the Bloomberg does that change anything for you? 
Well, unfortunately, not really, Ed. Uh, and thanks for having me. So, you know, Netflix has kind of been taking baby steps, really, in this space uh, of gaming. They now have about 30 games or so. It's been on their platform for about uh, 10 months. But so far, we've seen that, you know, the uptake has really been fairly lackluster. Uh, we just recently saw a report from Aptopia, which said that less than 1% of their subscriber base has actually engaged with the games. Um, and so, you know, I think it's going to be a case of, you know, too little too late. Uh, this whole news about them developing their, their own studio is pretty much taking a page out of the same playbook that they followed for their original video content, right? They created, right. They've created their own studios, they have their own originals, whether it's, you know, a Stranger Things uh, or, or a Witcher, uh, but I think with the video game market, it's it, the dynamics are totally different. It takes years and years to create a, a viable slate of good games, uh, and I think Netflix is going to find that out. Well, Gita, to illustrate that point, we've got this chart which shows that in the third quarter, based on app downloads, you could just take Candy Crush. We all know Candy Crush, more than 39 million downloads. Every single Netflix game that's available, just shy of 5.5 million. And I think in your research, you point out there are some technological restrictions insofar as you can only get Netflix games through the mobile app, right? What's the problem yeah. there? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, you know, so much of uh, the problem with why the uptake has been so slow is because of discovery, right? Or, or the lack of discovery, so to speak. So first of all, it's only available on mobile. Remember, 75% of Netflix viewing happens on connected TV, and there's really no option there to even play a game. So you have to be on your mobile device. And then once you're on your mobile device and you do wish to, you know, kind of engage with a Netflix game, you actually have to leave the app and go and download load the, the, the mobile gaming app separately. So there's kind of quite a bit of friction there. So it's not exactly the most user friendly right now. And I think that's been right. one of the other reasons that has inhibited kind of that uptake. All right, Gita Rangane from Bloomberg Intelligence. Good to catch up. Thank you for joining us. This is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in New York. Meta says it has blocked thousands of inauthentic accounts, pages and groups from Facebook and Instagram that originated in Russia and China. Meta says the Russia accounts spread propaganda about the war with Ukraine and China-based accounts were targeting U.S. users in regards to midterm elections. Sarah Fryer leads our big tech coverage here at Bloomberg News. So, Sarah, what do we know about the accounts that were frozen by Meta? Well, the thing that was most interesting to me about this report is that um, Meta made a rare disclosure of the amount of advertising that these accounts spent, uh, around $105,000 from Russia to spread propaganda about the war in Ukraine. And that's significant because uh, this company has, of course, come under criticism for receiving advertising dollars from Russia around the U.S. election back in 2016. They still don't have a way to to block this from happening, um, even though it's against their rules, even though they've built up this security team. They have said that, that they will continue to have problems like this. They will try to catch them early. But the fact that there was a, that level of advertising campaign shows that there's still work to do.
right? Sarah, over the last four years, I remember, you know, sitting with you, looking at these kind of blog posts from what was then Facebook, now Meta, about the work they were doing. And th this idea that they're trying to be more transparent. Are they being more transparent with what they're doing? I do think that they are being more, more open about what they're finding and taking down. Um, but I think that that is still, you know, not the major issue here. The issue is not that you know, this stuff exists. The fact is that they still have a platform where this stuff can go viral, that it can be easily gained. Um, they have groups where they can, um, where these kinds of uh, foreign governments can build followings around top. But that, the fundamentals of how Facebook works has not changed. Right. Um, and so they're going to continue to play whack-a-mole until, um, until that changes. And, and I think that um, you know, the disclosure is, is a good thing, but it's only one part of the problem. Let's pivot to TikTok. Your team has been writing about what TikTok and, it, and its parent company, ByteDance, have been doing in Washington, D.C. What is the strategy there? What is the latest? Well, speaking of transparency, I mean, people in, in D.C. have a lot of questions about TikTok. They are, they are under fire um, from, from Republicans, Democrats, everyone around uh, around their their issues with their algorithm, um, whether there's a national security risk in the fact that they are owned by the Chinese by a Chinese based a China based company. Um, the problem is TikTok has not been willing to to speak with some of its loudest critics. Um, and when it has spoken with them, it hasn't gone over well. So uh, reporters Alex Barinka and Emily Birnbaum spoke with multiple sources to give the behind-the-scenes look of, of how this is working in D.C. They know, uh, TikTok knows that they have some trust right. issues there um, and that they're going to have to work on their credibility, that it's going to be difficult. Um, and there, there's also um, a decision on Scythius looming. Um, so so it, it's a little difficult for them to really come out with a, a strong plan before knowing what that action might be from the federal government. Um, and in the meantime, their critics are only growing louder. All right, Bloomberg, Sarah Fryer, thank you very much. Some other Meta news. Sheryl Sandberg got an applause as she ex exited the Meta headquarters in Menlo Park, California on Tuesday. This was her last week as COO after announcing she'd stepped down back in June. Sandberg joined the company, then known as Facebook, in 2008. She will remain on the board of directors. Now, Sam Bankman-Fried says his M&A spree, including many deals with traditional financial firms, will not hinder FTX's profitability this year. He's also said he's got more cash to burn. Here's some of Bankman-Fried's conversation earlier on Bloomberg Crypto. We've tried to be somewhat judicious, um, frankly, with you know the deals that we've been doing, and you know obviously that's not going to be perfect. And you know there we have obviously made some expenditures through that, but. You know, we have not, uh, you know, we have not used the majority of the cash that we have on our, our balance sheet. Yeah. You know, that's not necessarily to say that there are other things imminently here. Mm. Um, you know, so much as that we want to be flexible and, you know, we want to be in a position where we are, uh, you know, looking forward at, uh, you know, what we can be doing, where we can be most helpful um, and where we can grow the most. So, you know, I think how I would describe us right now is as exploring and you know, I don't know uh, if that's going to necessarily lead anywhere. It might, it might not. Um, but, you know, we're going to continue poking around. You know, um, 
that reminds me of one of the other cool things that Bravo said in the FT. He thinks that a lot of people in the industry are disturbing in, in terms of their lack of transparency. You're not one of those people, obviously. He is willing to invest in you again. Um, how much cash is on your balance sheet? What kind of free cash flow are you generating? How much are you burning through? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, and you know we were uh, you know we were profitable last year. I you know expect that you know we'll likely be profitable this year as well. Um, and I uh, you know I mean you can look we raised you know all things considered a couple billion dollars last year. Um, you know we have done a number of acquisitions. We've generated some you know free cash flow just with uh, you know with revenue. Um, you know when you kind of try and combine all of those things together at the end of the day, I think you're left with. Um, you know, upwards of a billion dollars. Um, and, um, you know, there's some definitional issues here which are, are worth noting around regulatory capital and other things, which make it not trivial to define exactly what the right number to talk about is. Um, but, uh, you know, we still have some uh, uh, fair bit of dry power. Well, Sam, you said regulatory, so I do want to talk about regulation now, especially as we've had a number of stories just circulating in the last 24, 48 hours or so, including New York Attorney General here in New York, Letitia, is accusing Nexo of falsely claiming that it was a licensed broker-dealer. Then in South Korea, you have prosecutors freezing $67 million worth of assets tied to Do Kwon, who they are seeking to arrest. You also have Ethereum's latest upgrade, known as the merge, that could be triggering widespread tax confusion in the U.K., and on top of all of that, we hear from the chairman of the Federal Reserve earlier today talking about the need for more crypto oversight. Just take a listen to what he said. There's a real need for more appropriate regulation so that uh, as as a DeFi expands and starts to touch more and more retail customers and that sort of thing, uh, so that appropriate regulation is in place. So more regulation is needed, but of course you already know that, and that's something you've been working on for yep. some time now. Do you feel like we're getting closer to some kind of real framework or at least having organized jurisdiction, what the CFTC and SEC each control separately? So I, I do think that there's been a lot of progress made, and I'm, I, I, you know, I'm really excited for that. I think that that's a key thing you know, for the industry going forward, and I, and I do think that we've made you know, a lot of progress. You look at where we were a year ago with very little going on on the regulatory side. You know, you look today where there are, you know, proposals in Congress to provide clarity for spot cryptocurrency assets, um, where the SEC and CFTC are both working on regimes, where you have stablecoin bills going through. Um, you know, we obviously have been applying for licensure, you know, um, with with the, the CFTC and, and you're in active discussions with the SEC as well. It's, it is really a world of difference. And I, I think that's pretty exciting. Um, and, you know, I agree that, that, you know, there needs to be clear federal oversight here um, to really protect consumers and at the same time uh, to be able to provide you know, clarity for the industry to operate. That was FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried. Add Celsius and FTX to the growing list of crypto executives that have resigned. Alex Mashinsky stepped down as Celsius CEO two months after the crypto lender filed for bankruptcy. Mashinsky launched Celsius, launched Celsius in 2017, pitching it as a safer and better alternative than traditional banks. And FTX US's president, Brett Harrison, has also stepped down to transition to an advisory role. We've seen a ton of turnover in crypto since the downturn. Just last week, Kraken CEO Jesse Powell announced his resignation. Coming up, Strike CEO Jack Mallers on his fresh funding for the mobile payments platform. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? 
inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now, Strike has just struck $80 million in new funding. The mobile payments platform, which uses the Bitcoin Lightning Network, played a big role in El Salvador's Bitcoin push. Now it wants to use the new cash to grow its partnerships and launch new ones. Let's bring in Strike CEO Jack Mallers to discuss. Jack, congrats on the round. What does it mean for you? What are you going to use that pile of cash for? Thank you, my fine sir. I appreciate Bloomberg having me back. Uh, what am I going to use the money for? Uh, to continue to improve payments. We think Lightning Network and Bitcoin is some of the biggest and uh, most broad stroke innovation in the history of payments. And there's a lot to do because it's one of the biggest industries in the world. So it's a cool moment. We're very proud of it, but we have our work cut out for us. And uh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot to do uh, to solve payments globally. Jack, take me back to basics. What is the Bitcoin Lightning Network? I think it's like helpful for the audience to know what it is that it kind of underlines what your company does. Yeah, so we're going to kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, the Lightning Network allows Bitcoin to move instantaneously and at relatively no cost. And to the novice on the couch, you'd probably go like, wow, who's this kid in a hat? Why is that important? I don't care. Yeah, but you might care because Bitcoin is a digital instrument. It's actually value. It's globally recognized as value. And then the fact that it could move in real time and settle instantly is something that no payment network has ever been do- able to do in the history of payments. You have payments that actually take weeks to settle. They're very expensive to settle. They involve two to 10 parties. And the fact that Bitcoin could be digital, global, recognizable value and move at the speed of light and at relatively no cost, you have to put your thinking cap on and be like, huh, I bet we can do a lot of cool stuff with that. And from a very high level, that's why the technology is fascinating. And that's why I founded the company is because we got to use that technology and make it commercially viable for people in the real world to realize those benefits. Jack, we focused a lot on the volatility in Bitcoin in recent months. I'm just looking at a one-year chart on my Bloomberg. But if you go from sort of June to where we are now, we've traded in a more narrow range of around 20,000 US dollars. We've called you a Bitcoin maximalist. 
you know, give us your take on what's happening with, with Bitcoin specifically. Yeah, so I think what's interesting, when we think of Bitcoin and payments, we actually use it to escrow value and we don't care about the volatility. So the services that my company offers, we allow you to move dollars over it or euros over it or any fiat currency over it. So volatility doesn't matter to our customers because our customers are never subjected to holding the actual asset. Now, as a Bitcoin holder, as someone who holds Bitcoin in my portfolio, I mean, what, you want to talk about Bitcoin, you want to talk about Netflix stock, or you want to talk about the British pound? I mean, the macro environment's a little bit of a mess, and I'm happy to talk about it. But uh, <laughs> the, the real main point, this is the one I, I want to stick. Uh, the reason that Bitcoin is an attractive asset, and it's an attractive money to hold, and it carries the properties that are enticing to someone that wants to store wealth in it, have not changed. And that's by design. No one can change them. And so the theory and the thesis on why Bitcoin is important to the world, and increasingly so, so is as profound and as sound as it's ever been, and it will always remain that way. Uh, and so I think Bitcoin's got nothing but time on its side. And as the macro environment kind of continues to play a game of Twista and figure itself out, uh, Bitcoin's going to do its thing. It's very simple uh, supply-demand metrics when, when you know that the supply is fixed and demand's the only thing that right. sets the price. So. Jack, Bitcoin's going to do its thing. I think, you know, the other consideration we're always focused on are the regulators. And thankfully, Fed Chair Jerome Powell has been speaking about crypto. Let's have a listen. We think that the central bank is and, and will always be the main source of trust behind money. Stablecoins essentially borrow that trust from the underlying issuer. And, and in many cases, these are dollar stablecoins. So they're really borrowing that trust. Jack, Jack, I appreciate he was talking about stable coins in that example, but he, he's essentially saying that trust has to come from central banks. Your system and your thesis is kind of the opposite of that, right? Yeah, trust has to come from central banks. The guy that runs a central bank didn't happen to say that, did he? I mean, come on, let me tell you something. I'm an individual, I'm an American. Uh, trust in money comes from whatever I want my money to be held in and who I want to trust. That's not defined for anyone other than myself. Um, it's democracy. I'm a, I appreciate the comment, uh, Mr. Powell, but I'm going to decide like, who I trust and what assets I want to hold, unless that's all of a sudden illegal or not like, is frowned upon. So, no, no that's my take. Listen, I, I, I like a system that's bounded to the physical realities of the world. Money cannot just be created out of thin air. Creating money cannot be free. What do I want the cost to create money? I really like a natural resources that's bound to the physical world like energy. Right. I think that that's an awesome way to understand who gets to create money, the expense to which and create it, and a programmatic adjustment right. in a distributed network to see how hard it is. So I don't know. I mean, call me crazy. I prefer something like that. All right. Well, we're grateful to have you on Strike founder and CEO, Jack Mallers. Thank you very much. I didn't much. curse. You're welcome. Southeast Asia ride-sharing and delivery giant Grab expects revenue to slow sharply as it targets profitability in 2024, speeding up efforts to reverse years of losses. The company will focus on expanding into new areas such as groceries, banking and advertising. I caught up with CFO Peter Oe to discuss. We have this marketplace that we can continue to create efficiency 
and monetization at the same time. And part of this is serving our merchants. We have over 4 million registered merchants on our platform, whether they're the small businesses, medium-sized businesses, or even franchise restaurants, quick service uh, conglomerates that's on our platform today. And how do we serve them better? And advertising is one of those elements that we can serve them better. We have a lot of data on our merchants. We have a lot of data on our consumers. So how do you put those two together? And we've seen very early wins in advertising. We'll be continuing to expand on that. We're continuing to develop also the technology behind that. So we feel very strongly that actually advertising as part of our future growth will benefit the ecosystem, especially our merchants today in Southeast Asia. Hey, Peter, on the ride hailing and delivery front, it looks like the competition's coming for you. You know, in key markets like Singapore, a lot of names entering the market. How do you pull off this profitability goal and defend market share at the same time? Yeah, competition has always been intense in Southeast Asia. We acknowledge that. But we're very focused in making sure that our super app, our product, and our services continues to be one that our consumer will continue to use. And we've seen engagement. We've seen continuing interaction with our super app, our drivers also at the same time, as well as our merchants. So we're going to continue to to be very heads down and continuing to create this ecosystem because it creates stickiness also, despite what we see around us, whether it's new competitors or existing competitors that we have. We also have one of the strongest balance sheet that we have here right. in Southeast Asia. Is there room for all these players? Do you see some consolidation happening in Southeast Asia? Hey, what about M&A? Organic growth is very key for us. We're going to continue to be focused on growing the ecosystem. We've got all those new initiatives that we talked about, and we're going to continue to develop new products and services. And we're going to continue also to broaden our TAM. Our TAM is also broadening as we have these new services that uh, we're creating, things like digital banks that we never had before, advertising that we've never had before. So we'll continue to focus and just execute on organic growth. And again, part of that is making sure our super app strategy continues to flourish here in Southeast Asia. You mentioned the balance sheet. There was a time where $6 billion seemed like a lot of money. It doesn't seem like a lot of money anymore. Are you gonna need to raise more capital? Yeah, capital allocation framework was one of the topics actually that we were discussing during our investor day today. And one of the first pillar that I alluded earlier was cash preservation. And we're very disciplined in making sure that every penny counts and every cost in our business also is being optimized. And we will continue to be very disciplined in making sure that cash is preserved. We tap the debt markets? We actually have a term loan B that we have currently that in existence. We have a 1.8 term loan B facility, and we've that's we've it's been in place now for the last for the last two years, and it's part of our capital allocation framework, and a different capital structure works, and we're in a very good spot right now in terms of where we are with our balance sheet, and as with the future growth and also with the future free cash flow that we can generate as we get to break even in the future, we feel that our balance sheet actually will continue to be strengthened in in the future years. That was Peter Oe, Grab's CFO. Meanwhile, the arcade game Asteroid has come 
to life. A NASA spacecraft has successfully crashed into an asteroid, asteroid about 6.8 million miles from Earth. It was a test to determine if the impact can nudge the space rock slightly off course. The US Space Agency is in the early stages of a plan to protect the Earth from asteroids. If measurements show the asteroid course was even slightly altered, NASA will consider the mission a success. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Wednesday, we'll hear from Circle CEO Jeremy Allier about USDC and the future of fintech. Don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal as well as online on Apple, Spotify, and as always, iHeartRadio. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.